Welcome to the Bridgeway Community Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Bridgeway, visit our website at bridgeway.cc. You can watch this sermon and all of our sermons at our YouTube channel, and make sure you subscribe while you're there. You can download the sermon notes at the link in the description. Our associate pastor, Scott Garber, starts a series today and reminds us that sometimes a relationship needs more than an I'm sorry in order to be repaired. Sometimes it requires confession and repentance. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this inspiring message. Good morning, Bridgeway. My name is Pastor Scott Garber, and it's my privilege to welcome you here around the table of God's Word today as we begin this two-week mini-series on Beyond Apologies. Of course, we're praying for our senior pastor, Dr. David Anderson, who's on his summer sabbatical. And as we remember him in prayer, we just want to forge ahead and uh, look at God's Word today. So we're glad that you are with us. Let's take a moment for a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into today's message. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for your provision, for your revelation. We thank you for your Word and for its practicality today. So we pray that you'll open our hearts and minds, that you'll give us your grace, and that your Holy Spirit will take these words and apply them to our hearts today. We pray for our pastor that you'll just be with him and grant him insight and rest and relaxation during these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Once upon a time, my wife Cindy and I were missionaries in the country of Spain where I taught theology at the Spanish Bible Institute just outside of Barcelona. We spent a lot of time with our Spanish friends, but we also had some dear American colleagues, and some of them lived right in the neighborhood. One of those families included a freckle-faced, scrawny little kid named Zach, who sometimes played with our daughter, Jen. Zach was a nice young man, and we had him in our lives for several years, but when he became a teenager, he and his family moved back to the States. Well, Zach ended up at Colorado Springs Christian High School, and he joined the soccer team there. And that's where Zach met Ryan. Now, Ryan's grandfather was a pastor, and most of his aunts and uncles were missionaries, so the two young men kind of had this family ministry thing in common. But they also shared an interest in music. And one day, kind of out of the blue in their senior year, they just decided to start their own band. So they played a few local gigs, and they had some fun. But the next year, they went off to college, and so they kind of went their separate ways. But that's not the end of the story. A year after his graduation from Oral Roberts University, Ryan Tedder contacted his friend Zach Filkins and asked if he was still interested in doing that band thing. So Zach joined Ryan in L.A., and One Republic was born. In 2008, their song Apologize became the biggest radio airplay hit in the history of the mainstream Top 40. And of course, the group is still wildly popular. In case you're wondering, we did manage to reunite with Zach a few years ago when One Republic played the 930 Club in D.C. We met for supper at the famous Ben's Chili Bowl, and then we walked a few blocks over to the venue, which is near Howard University. So Zach took us in the side door and set us up right in front of the stage, standing, of course, for the entire concert because there are no seats in the 930 Club. So there we are, pretty much the oldest people in the place by a solid generation, 
packed in there like sardines. And of course, being right in front of the stage also meant being right in front of the speakers, which were so enormous that we were like staring right into them. Cindy literally had to cover her ears with her hands, which I thought was kind of inappropriate, but it was very loud. So after the concert, we got to go backstage for a while, and it was fun, and it all makes for a nice story. But this story also has kind of a sideways connection to today's theme. One Republic's song, Apologize, insists that, guess what? It's now too late to apologize. Now, I don't really know how often or under what conditions it's actually too late to apologize. But I do know that sometimes it's simply not enough to apologize. So we're about to embark on this two-week mini-series entitled Beyond Apologies. Because there are times when apologies are simply not enough. And then what do you do? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've offered an apology, but it just really didn't work. I mean, it didn't resolve the issue. It didn't restore the relationship. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. If not, maybe tomorrow. If so, this message is for you. So I hope this message will help you and give you some divine insight to how to go to beyond apologies and how to bring about real change in yourself and in your relationships. This week, we're going to look at beyond apologies addressing offenses. And next week, we're going to look at, beyond apologies, redressing offenses. Get it? Addressing offenses, redressing offenses. It's clever if you think about it just right. But before we can actually talk about how to go beyond apologies, we need to think for just a moment about why apologies are often insufficient. And the basic problem is that apologies may not address the real offense. Think about it now. We say, I'm sorry, for all kinds of things, even when we haven't actually done anything wrong. When we say, I'm sorry, you're having a bad day, well, we're not really taking responsibility for it, are we? I've apologized to guests in my Airbnb for a stretch of bad weather they've had during their stay. We both knew that I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. In this case, what sounds like an apology is really just an expression of empathy. If you accidentally step on someone's toes, you might offer an excuse-me apology. If you're British, you might apologize even if somebody steps on your toes because, well, across the pond, sorry is kind of a national sport. But even when we're offering an apology in response to an actual offense, saying I'm sorry or saying I apologize isn't necessary, necessarily an admission of guilt. Sometimes it's just like, Sorry you feel that way, or sorry if I upset you, which still obviously is not admitting doing anything wrong. It may just be kind of a polite way of saying, you know, they're kind of touchy. We're hoping that they'll just reply, oh, that's okay, no worries, and we can all just go about our business without anybody actually taking responsibility for what happened. But possibly the worst sort of insincere apology is the I'm sorry but apology which then goes on to place the blame either on some circumstance beyond anyone's control or, even worse, on the other person. As in, I'm sorry, but, you know, you kind of pushed me over the edge. Oh, that'll make things better, right? Yes, sir. When something that sounds like an apology can mean so many different things, it just gets 
kind of confusing. So when someone apologizes, how do you know that they actually get it? That what they did was wrong, that it hurt you and that it hurt your relationship with them. And how do you know they won't do exactly the same thing the next time? Well, you know, apologies don't always tell you that, and that's why apologies are often not enough. Not only are apologies often insufficient from a relational point of view, apologies are often insufficient from a scriptural point of view. Now, I've made what I think is an exhaustive study of the biblical admonitions to offer an apology. So you might, if you have a paper and pen, you might want to take note of this. But if you don't, you can probably just remember it because actually there aren't any. That's right. No biblical admonitions to apologize. Zero. Zip. Nada. Sorry. Which isn't to say that we haven't all been commanded to apologize because we have been by our mamas. Who hasn't heard, now I want you to apologize to your brother or sister or friend. Tell them you're sorry. Which was often followed by a completely deadpan, I'm sorry. These were classic moments in the history of contrition, weren't they? But what about a passage like Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, in which Jesus tells us that if we are on our way to worship and remember that a brother or sister has something against us, we need to drop everything and go first and be reconciled to that person before even continuing with our worship. Doesn't that call for an apology? Well, it might, but not the kind we've been talking about to this point. Because those lackluster apologies are unlikely to lead to reconciliation, which, of course, is what Jesus is calling for. He didn't say, go apologize. He said, go be reconciled. An apology, you see, is essentially an expression of remorse, which is all fine and dandy, but it's the, really the reason that we feel that remorse and our reaction to that remorse, like what we're going to, to do about it, that determines the value of the apology. I mean, that's what God is looking for. And so that's maybe why God doesn't command us to apologize, but he does command us to, to confess, and he commands us to repent. So let's look at those two dynamics, confession and repentance, and see how they can take an apology and kick it up a notch. Susan Wise Bauer, in her book, The Art of the Public Grovel, explains how confessions are unlike apologies. Apology and confession are not the same, she says. An apology is an expression of regret. I am sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I'm sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. See the difference? A few weeks ago, Pastor Gary Coiro talked about the dynamic of confession and repentance before God, which, which of course is always appropriate and necessary because any sin is an affront to a holy God. But it seems that we're sometimes less inclined to own up in to our sins in front of the people that we've actually offended with those sins. Maybe that because, that's because we know we can't fool God, but we think that maybe on a horizontal plane, if we can just keep from admitting it, maybe it won't sound so bad. 
or maybe it's just the embarrassment. But for whatever reason, we do try to wiggle out of it, don't we? Bad idea, says the wise man. King Solomon observed in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. Now granted, the circle of confession might be bigger than the circle of offense. That is, we might confess our sins to people that we haven't actually offended. But it seems to me that this command to confess to others doesn't mean much unless it at least includes the people in the circle of offense. Earlier we mentioned how Jesus tells us to reconcile with the person who has something against us. But in order for that reconciliation to be authentic, there must first be a common understanding about the nature of the problem, about what really happened. You see, apologies are often driven by sentiment. But confession requires us to confront the truth. The truth about who we are. The truth about what we did the truth about how it affected others. In fact, the Greek word homologia, which is translated as confession in our English versions of the Bible, is a compound word made up of homo, which means same, and logia, which means words. Same words. To, say, con to confess is to say the same thing or to agree. That's why when the black majority took power in South Africa, they instituted a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, chaired by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It wasn't enough to allow people, in this case white people, to pretend that a half century of apartheid was just a, some kind of big oops, perhaps a misunderstanding or maybe a collective learning experience. Because that's not how the people who suffered under that oppression experienced it. If everyone had been allowed to have their own version of the facts and maybe apologize and then move on, well, that kind of sweeping things under the rug was not going to lead to reconciliation. And, by the way, we in this country could learn an awful lot from the South African experience and example because we have somewhat of a tendency to leap forward to the reconciliation and not pay much attention to the truth. When we confess to God, we're agreeing with what He knows to be true. And when we confess to others, we must also agree with what they know to be true. Which is what? Which is how that thing we said or did landed in their world. Not what we intended, but what they experienced. And even then, it's not enough to simply acknowledge that common truth. You have to appreciate that truth as well. So let me illustrate the difference between acknowledging a truth and appreciating it. When I was doing research for my book, White as Sin, I decided to do a deep dive on the subject of lynching. Now, there's a word that will bring a hush to just about any room. Of course, before I even began the study, I already acknowledged that the lynching era was a terrible and shameful part 
of our past. That's exactly why I wanted to look at it. But after spending all of my working hours for an entire month on that single subject, after allowing my spirit to steep in that truth, I came to appreciate it in a way that I never had before. In fact, I've never been the same. I can hardly tell the story now without starting to get teary-eyed. What I'm trying to say here is that for our confession to be therapeutic, for it to bring healing, it can't just be a grudging agreement between us and the people we've offended. That agreement must also be empathetic. When we confess, when we say the same thing as the offended person, we're not just acknowledging a truth. We have to also appreciate that truth. We have to feel that truth. We have to come to grips with that reality as they have experienced it. It's true, as they say, that that confession is good for the soul. But that doesn't mean it's comfortable. Because it isn't. Unlike in the world of apologies, with confession, there's no hiding behind alternative narratives about what really happened. There's no pretending that we're not really the sort of person who would do the kind of thing that, in fact, we did. What I said was unkind. What I did was selfish or haughty or cruel or fill in the blank. Those are not easy words to say. Yes, confession is tough, but when apologies are not enough, confession may be just what the divine doctor ordered. And guess what? Once we agree with the person we've offended that what we did was wrong, it often takes the wind out of the sails of their animosity. When we give that offense a name or admit that our motives were just as stinky as our actions, it becomes clear that we're taking this matter seriously. And that affirms, that validates the other person's feelings and at least begins to relax the relational tension. Let me give you a simple real-life example as told to me by my wife, Cindy. And I share this story with her permission. Those of you who follow me on Facebook might know that during the month of May, Cindy volunteered on a special work detail. Now, her regular job is that of a budget analyst for the U.S. attorneys in Washington, D.C. But for that month, she ended up in the desert outside of El Paso, Texas, working with unaccompanied minors, teenage girls in this case, many of whom had been traumatized in the course of their journey northward across the U.S.-Mexican border. Some of you prayed for her, and Bridgeway's Missions Outreach helped us to buy some uh, Spanish New Testaments to distribute to the girls. So I just want to take this opportunity to express my appreciation for, for the support that we received from our church family. Now, Cindy was able to make a difference in the lives and in the care of these girls, but it was not an easy assignment. She had to leave her hotel between 5.30 and 6 a.m. every morning in order to be in place at 7 o'clock for a 12-hour shift that was six or sometimes seven days a week. The complex itself was a hastily constructed uh, tent city, and the tent that she was assigned to was home to 800 or so girls. It was very cramped quarters, 
the, the upper bunk of the bunk beds was about waist high, and the beds were so close together that she had to turn sideways to pass in between them. It was hot, it was noisy, it was always dusty. She and another woman were appointed as the spiritual leads of the group, and so Cindy would every morning come alongside girls who were praying at the makeshift altar that they had there and pray with them and make sure that there were plenty of, of Spanish New Testaments to pass out. Well, one of her main responsibilities was clothing distribution, and that was in complete chaos when she arrived. If the girls didn't label their laundry exactly right, it often didn't make its way back to them. And when new clothing would, would appear, it was often the wrong size, or the label didn't match the actual size, or there might have been two shoes with, with two left feet. But one day they got a new shipment of, a huge new shipment of clothing, and it was so big they had to close down the entire distribution area in order to organize their inventory. Problem was, the girls had seen all these boxes coming in, so they kept coming back and asking about the stuff. So Cindy and her colleagues just had to keep repeating over and over, sorry, we're closed right now, sorry, we're closed right now. There wasn't any, there wasn't any system for relaying new information to everybody at the same time, so if you had something new to, to, uh, to communicate, you might have to say it 800 times. So, in short, not very good conditions. But after, this day, after they'd been turning away these immigrant girls for hours on end, one of the adult federal workers came up to ask a question. And Cindy just brusquely cut her off and said, we're closed. Now, this woman was normally, like, pretty reserved. as She just sort of walked away. But a few minutes later, she came back, and she was looking animated. So she said to Cindy, I just wanted you to know that you were really rude. So, here we go. What's going to be the next volley and the one after that? But this time, Cindy found the proper response. She said, you're right. I was rude. I'm sorry. This lady actually took a step back and said, wow, I wasn't expecting that response. As we were just discussing, when you agree with the offended person, it often takes the sails, the wind right out of the sails of their animosity. But Cindy continued, she said, thank you for telling me that. That was brave. I shouldn't have done that. And that's not the kind of person I, wanted to be, I want to be. So I needed someone to confront me so that I don't do that again. Later, these two women had a chance to work together, and they developed a really good relationship. And by the end of the month, they were actually laughing about this incident. Of course, some people have their own issues, and things don't always work out quite so smoothly. But the fact is that when you mess up, you still got to fess up. Not only is it the morally responsible thing to do, it's a great way to de-escalate de a situation. If you were listening carefully, though, to that story, you may have noticed that Cindy's response contained another important element that's related to confession, but one that actually goes a significant step further. You see, she not only admitted that what she did was wrong and agreed with the other person, she committed herself to a better pathway going forward. That's not the kind of person I want to be, she said. And she thanked the woman for having the courage to say something so that she wouldn't do the same thing again. 
That commitment to change is called repentance. Repentance goes beyond an admission of wrong to an actual rejection of that behavior and a commitment to a new and improved way forward, one that actually conforms to God's standards of righteousness. You see, sometimes when apologies are not enough, even confession is not enough. Sure, you've admitted that you did wrong, and you may even be genuinely remorseful, but the other person is still suspicious, wondering if you've really changed and what's going to happen the next time. Maybe they'll forgive you, maybe not, but still they're not that anxious to be around you because they're kind of afraid that you might hurt them again. And so you're not really reconciled. Yes, you've apologized, maybe you've even confessed, but you're not reconciled. Remember one of our key verses from Proverbs 28:13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Every time we confess a sin to God, we should also renounce it, forsake it, turn from it. But if you're like me, you have sins that you've probably confessed to God over and over and over again because guess what? You haven't actually changed that pattern of behavior. So while confession and repentance are related, they're not the same. One doesn't automatically lead to the other. Repentance is not just turning away from our sinful ways. It's turning toward, it's adopting, it's embracing this new pattern of behavior that pleases God. But that same dynamic that works on the, the vertical level, that same kind of moral pivot, is also critical in our horizontal interpersonal relationships. When you explicitly turn from a behavior that damaged your relationship, people are a lot more inclined to give you a second chance. Reconciliation all of a sudden looks a lot more inviting because the future doesn't look so much like the past. When you've truly offended someone else, apologies may not be enough to repair that relationship. Confession, the recognition of your own wrongdoing, that's a tougher road, but it's a surer remedy. But even when you've confessed, you can't just then say, well, I admitted it, and if they can't forgive me now, we'll just fool you on them. You may have to prove your commitment to change over time. So the question then becomes, are you willing to do whatever it takes to restore that relationship? Today's message is entitled, Beyond Apologies. But how do you know when you need to go beyond apologies? Well, begin by examining your relationships. Is there someone in your life to whom you did or said something that drove a wedge between you, that built up a relational barrier that left you somewhat estranged? Maybe you've apologized, and maybe they've even accepted your apology. But in your heart of hearts, you know things still are not right. At this point, maybe you're even blaming them, your husband or wife or friend or family member. You think that because you've apologized, you've done everything that you need to do and that they're just being stubborn. But you know what? This may be one of those times when apologies just aren't enough. Because when you've done actual wrong to someone, a confession is in order. And some further evidence of repentance may also be necessary. 
as we all know, relationships are complicated things. So even when you do everything that God requires, there are no guarantees that you're going to turn the heart of another person. Even Jesus had his Judas. So I'm not offering you today a magic elixir or another people fixer. What I am doing is inviting you to step into your own moral responsibility before God and before others. Just do what God is calling you to do and let God do the things that only God can do. But even though there are no guarantees in human relationships, when you plant a seed of humble contrition, when you water it with love and prayer, and when you give it the time that patience requires, watch out. Because our God, the God we serve, is all about reconciliation. And he's concerned not only about reconciling you to him, but about bringing, but bringing about relational healing in this world, in your world, if you'll dare to go beyond apologies. Perhaps as you've listened to me today, you've realized that you're going to need some help if you're going to be this kind of person and that perhaps you don't have that kind of help because you've never actually taken the step of confessing and repent, repenting before God. You've never fixed that vertical relationship. That's where you need to begin if you want the power and the wherewithal to, to resolve the issues on the horizontal level. So I'm, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you've never made that decision to trust Christ, to ask for his forgiveness, to confess and repent before him, and you can, you can say these words however you want to. Use your own words. But I'm just going to suggest this for you. Pray with me if you want to follow Christ today. Lord, I realize that I've done so many things wrong. I've sinned and I've offended you. And that's left me estranged from the most, what could be the most important relationship in my whole life. So Lord, I need you today. I confess that this is who I am, that I've fallen short. And I repent. That's not the kind of person I want to be anymore, but I believe that you can make me into the kind of person you want me to be. So I'm asking for your forgiveness. I'm putting my faith in you. And I'm asking you to help me to be a faithful follower of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgeway Community Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Remember, you can learn more about Bridgeway by visiting our website at bridgeway.cc. You can watch this sermon and all of our sermons at our YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe. And you can download the sermon notes at the link in the description. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.